right. Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to the campus. All the way from River Bend. Good to see you guys here. Hello, Savannah. <laughs> okay, we are uh, Acts chapter 12, 1 to 19. The title of tonight's lesson is Heaven versus Herod. Heaven versus Herod. Um, Luke has, up to this point, told us um, about how the, the gospel spread from Jerusalem, right? It spread from Jerusalem to Samaria, to Caesarea, to the coast, and then spread up all the way north towards um, Antioch. Um, now, up to this point, we see in chapter 12 already, the Jews had heard the gospel in practically all of Israel. Uh, the Gentiles had also been incorporated into the family of God. Um, and I would like to say that the, the church now has two missional bases. Um, it's got Jerusalem as a missional base, and it seems to have Antioch in the north as a missional base as well. These are two strong churches. Antioch seems to um, be a base that reaches the Gentile world, and, and Jerusalem is a base that reaches the, 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 the Jewish uh, people across um, Israel. The last time that we spoke, we were in Antioch, and there was a prophet that arrived up there, and his name was Agabus. Agabus arrives, thank you, brother, and he said that there's a drought going to come throughout the whole known world. And we know that historically that is accurate. Hello, uh, my dear brother. So we know that that is pretty um, accurate historically. And, and what we also said about Agabus is that you want to test a, 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 whether a prophet speaks the truth. See if what he says comes, comes true. And that clearly happened um, at, in, in this uh, specific instance. Because there was historically recorded at least four droughts in, um, in, in the Middle East over there. And we have this particular one that seems to be the fourth drought that was the worst um, that hit Judah. And so the reason why this came onto the scene is because the church in Antioch was um, asked if you could, hey, can you guys help these Christians um, down in Jerusalem as they are going through this severe drought? And the people collected money, and the money was then taken by uh, Paul and Barnabas, I think it was, down to Jerusalem, um, which is incredible. And here's something beautiful, absolutely beautiful. Up to this point... So far, we've read a lot about Christians being persecuted, right, in the book of Acts. There's a lot of persecution. It's hard to be a Christian in the first century in Jerusalem. Um, uh, but um, those people who did suffer, they suffered for the name of Christ. They suffered because they were Christians. But now they're going to experience a different type of suffering. And this is drought. So there's poverty. There's lack of food. Um, there's that type of, of struggle. And this would affect everybody. Do you see the difference? Up to this point in Acts, it's only the Christians suffering. But now, um, Luke is telling us, hey, the whole world's going to suffer. Jews, Gentiles, pagans, um, everybody is going to struggle, inclusive of the Christians. But here's the beauty. Because Christianity is founded, is founded upon grace and generosity and love, um, they don't have to beg and plead from the government for food stamps. They have one another. And so the church in Antioch, they send help, they send aid for their brothers and their sisters down in Jerusalem. The Christian always has a way out. If you're a Gentile or you're a, you're a pagan, your only source of assistance when there's a drought or a, or a plague is the government. But the Christian, he has more than that. 
He doesn't just have the government. He's got his brothers and his sisters. And I think that's just, that's just awesome. Um, and you, some of you have been Christians your whole life. You have never, I, I suppose you've never gone without food. Otherwise, you've been surrounded by really bad Christians, right? Great, great bad Christians. We will never go grow hungry because we've got each other. So, anyways, while this drought is going on, Luke tells us while this drought, while, while this prophecy is taking place, uh, Agabus is releasing this in Antioch, it seems like there's something going on in Jerusalem, something else at this time as well. One of the church leaders gets killed by the sword. And this is the first time that an apostle gets killed. We know that James was the first martyr, but this was the first time that one of the people who walked with Jesus is actually killed. It seems like Satan is in action again in Jerusalem. Remember, there was a time of peace, the text says, and now suddenly um, Satan is rearing his head again, and, he's, and he's, he's, causing, he's using some governmental agents to bring about this persecution. Government. He uses government. As you can see, the title for tonight is Heaven versus Herod, and we know who Herod was, right? Um, we should not be surprised if the same thing comes our way. Um, if government persecutes the uh, Christian way, and I think we know that already, it's here. Luke is a good writer. I, 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 if you go read carefully as he writes, he's, he, he writes a consistent story. He, he moves from one point to the other, and he takes us on a, on a journey, a steady journey from the one place to the next. And like, like I said, we ended off last, two weeks ago, right, with, we ended off with Agabus and the prophecy, and then Barnabas and Paul going down to Jerusalem. And tonight we enter chapter 12, and we find ourselves in Jerusalem um, again. So, introduction to where the text is taking us tonight. A few questions. Um, what do you think motivates politicians? Power. There's a lot of stuff that motivates politicians. What do you think, brother? Uh, it's loaded. I'm sorry. Yeah. Money. Money. Power. Greed. Okay, well, let's look at this text tonight. Secondly, why do intergenerational sins perpetuate? We have children doing the same things as their parents and the same thing as their parents' parents. Why is it that certain sins perpetuate from one generation to the next? Um, thirdly, is continual prayer more effective than occasional prayer? This, this, I feel, is, is also a very important question. The more I pray, is that, does that make it more likely God will answer my prayer? Like, is, 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 is it fervent prayer and continual prayer that seems to activate heaven more? The more time and energy I put in, does that open heaven more and turn God's ear to the earth more? What do you say, Steve? Yes or no? I caught you picking your fingernails. I'm just joking, right? Okay. Uh, lastly, Luke 18, 27. This is a very important verse for me and my personal prayer life. What is impossible with man is possible with God. How does this affect your prayer life? This verse. Think about that for a moment. What is impossible with man is possible with God. How does that affect your prayer life? So, we will uh, touch on these things as we go through this um, tonight. Let's start with the text. And I, I've got, you know, sometimes I, we've had a few instances in Acts where I was like, okay, I don't know if this is going to be uh, a fun text to deal with. Uh, I, I, I see a lot of humor in this text. I think God is, is, is a funny guy sometimes. 
Let's read verse 1 to 19. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. There we go. When he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, in another translation it says, when he saw that this pleased the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. Well, this uh, name Herod is familiar, right? We are familiar with this guy. This, unfortunately, is not the guy that we think about. And this is why I asked the intergenerational question, because um, Herod the Great, what did he kill? Babies. Herod the Great killed babies when Jesus was born. Herod Antipas beheaded who? John the Baptist. That's the son of Herod the Great. This over here is Herod Agrippa, and he kills James the brother of John, one of the two brothers which uh, oh, we call the sons of thunder. So what we've got to remember as well is, is, that, is that Jesus had three close disciples, right? Peter, James, and John. Yes, this is one of the trio that's being killed here. So what we pick up, we pick up grandfather kills people, Son kills people, and now grandson kills people. It's intergenerational. These guys are killers. <laughs> Killer kings. So I, I think I want to suggest one of two reasons why Herod did this. The text gives us sort of an indication over there, which, which touches on the question as to um, what motivates politicians. So here's the first one. Herod made this move not because it was right, he didn't, he didn't say, okay, look, I'm going to go kill James because it's the right thing to do. Um, because it was just or because he was protecting the innocent. Uh, that's not the reason why uh, he, he did that. Or, or because he was in the pursuit of truth. He did this to promote his own popularity. Because, you check there, I'll put it sort of in, in red. Um, verse 3, when he saw that this met with approval among the Jews. So he, he, he saw, when I kill Christians, the Jews like it. Okay. We'll talk more about that. But then as I researched a little bit further into this guy, Herod Agrippa, uh, Josephus spoke about him and said he wasn't a bad guy. This is what he says about him. He says, this king was by nature very beneficent and liberal in his gifts and very ambitious to please the people with such large donations. And he made himself very illustrious by the many expensive presents he made to them. He took delight in giving and rejoiced in living with good reputation. So it seems like he was, an, he was a nice guy. Josephus says he was a pretty interesting guy. And it is possible that Herod, probably like his, his father and his grandfather, remember he's, he's basically an employee of the Roman government. And he's being judged as to how peaceful his um, jurisdiction is running. And if the Jews are happy, then he's got peace in the area where he's ruling. And so obviously that was high up, I think, in his, in his mind as well. And in a sense, he was trying to just please his God. His God was the Roman Empire. 
the Roman emperor. So it's one of those two things, I think. Either he was trying to be popular, he wanted the people to like him, or he was just trying to please the Roman Empire. And he was trying to just uh, do his job well. Either way, it's about him and human authority and not about God. Because this is something that God would not do. God wouldn't resort to violence or death. God is never on the side of murder or violent riots or uh, vandalism in the streets. That's my thoughts. So, just to go back to the, uh, the, the question I asked about politicians, um, I think some politicians are motivated by the desire to please the crowds or their God, right? So, when you vote, you've got to try and figure out who's their God. Do you think that, have you picked up that there are, how do you know if a politician really worships God? That's a difficult one, eh? Sorry, brother? By his actions. Because everybody says, oh, you're God, you know. They've known that's a selling point. They, they know that, right? Intergenerational sins perpetuate because parents transfer their passions to their kids. I've seen that so many times. Um, and that's why I'm very careful as to what I allow my kids to see as my passion. I, I've got to evaluate my passions because my kids pick up on my passions and they will carry that over. If you look at, if you look at Herod, Herod, and Herod, they all looked up to Herod the Great and then the one, I mean, they continually looked up to their fathers and said, okay, obviously his passion is to keep the Jews happy, to please the empire, even if that costs the death of people. The passion overrides what is right. So if we can raise our kids to be passionate about what's good, right, just, godly, uh, they will carry over into it because we are the greatest influences in their lives. So what I what also find interesting here is that here it seems to arrest Peter j during a Jewish festival. And I wondered why he would do that. It seems like the Jews hated Peter and this Christian movement with a passion. They hated it. Uh, they were stealing some of their guys. Um, and the destruction, the destruction of, the, of the enemies of the Jews is always a good news for the Jews. And I, I think, you know, some of the guys wrote about this. And they say that they think that Herod is trying to show them his intent to oppose all false religions uh, during a time of um, festivity. And to say, listen, I support the Jewish, um, the Jewish religion and oppose anything that opposes it. So it was a, it was a political move. Peter, why go for him? Well, Peter was the main guy. He was the great instigator. Um, and he was a slippery fellow. He's the first guy that preached the first gospel sermon, right? Acts chapter 2. So he's the first guy that launches this new message into the world. And then he goes to, in chapter 3, he goes to the gate called Beautiful at the temple, right? And he heals the beggar. And that orchestrates a whole thing that takes place in Jerusalem. He gets arrested. He gets told, don't go preaching. He leaves there, and he goes and he preaches again. Eventually, he preaches about the resurrection. The Sadducees are upset about that. They arrest him again. They put him into prison. He escapes from prison. Angel in the middle of the night comes and gets him out of prison. Another time, he gets arrested. He gets flogged. They tell him, don't go preach anymore in this name. He goes out, and he preaches again in the name. 
What do you pick up about Peter? You can't keep the guy quiet, and you can't keep him locked up. The Jews hated this guy. Get him, and the Christ we will be happy. For them, it's like the ultimate trophy. Herod, if you can get Peter for us, and you can silence that guy, the guy who started all of this, that'll be incredible. So Herod, I think, knew this. If I get Peter, if I capture him, and I promise the Jews at the end of the festivity I'm going to sort him out, that will be first prize. The Jews are going to love me. I'm going to have peace in this area. Um, so I think that's why, they, why he went for Peter. So, so Peter is arrested. But they don't know. Because remember, is this the first time Peter is in prison? Not the first time. While he was in jail. I don't know if jail and prison was that much different back then, but I hear, hear it is. So they know he was in jail previously, and somehow he escaped. But they don't know how. He was one of the guys. He wasn't alone. There were other guys with him. So maybe the wardens or the jailkeepers or the prison guards, whatever you call them, maybe they fell asleep last time. So this time, what does he say? Let's pack this guy out with, with soldiers, with, with, with prison guards. Four squads of four soldiers. That's 16 guys. 16 guys to guard one guy. So I suspect what happened here is, is that he was locked into prison. He had chains. And then he had two guys with him in the prison. And two guys outside the prison door. And they were alternating. I think every three hours through the night, you'd have four new guards to make sure nobody falls asleep. That this guy cannot get out. Because previously, maybe there was some trickery or there was some um, conspiracy or some involvement. Okay. Now, the Greek says, that last verse, the church was earnestly praying to God for him. This is important. What was the church praying about? They were praying specifically for Peter, right? The Greek says that the prayer was made without ceasing of the church unto God for Peter. So, without ceasing. Continue. Remember, that was one of the questions. Continual prayer. And it's interesting that there's, there's this juxtaposition between the world is persecuting, the church is praying. While the world is hating, the church is begging God for mercy. Beautiful. There's a spiritual war taking place. That's really what's behind everything, isn't it? There's a spiritual war taking place. And the question that came to my mind is, if I was a Christian, I'd be pretty upset. Why do you arrest Peter? Why are the Christians not rioting? Because that seems to be human nature. If you're upset about something that an authority does, what do you do? You riot. In Africa, they riot big time. They do it very well. We call it toy toy. And they, they dance while they do it. Thousands of them coming down the streets. Burn tires. Why were they not burning Roman flags in the street? Why did the Christians not do that if they're upset with the government? Why were they not burning tires and cheering outside the house of Herod? Because he arrested Peter. You can answer it if you want to. Exactly. Because they knew something many Christians today don't know. Prayer achieves more than human effort. 
It's not Herod that needs to hear us. It's heaven that needs to hear us. If heaven hears us, stuff can happen and anything can happen. These Christians understood that. I've, I've just met so many Christians, inclusive of myself. Oh, we complain. We were upset. We have conversations about everything. We're so upset about our government. We want to burn flags. Don't want to pay taxes. Do whatever. Just upset God. And I'm like, dude, just let heaven hear what you've got to say. Heaven can do more than you can about your king. They understood this. God can get more than, than we can. Their prayer was urgent. Why do you think their prayer was so urgent? And they continually prayed. Well, because they just saw James be killed. I mean, if somebody comes today and takes Steve out, and then Raleigh gets arrested, we'd be pretty urgent. We saw Steve bleed. His wife won't mind, but we would. Just joking, Shelley. Steve, your wife loves you. Don't worry, man. We do too, even though you're almost a man. Just joking. So, so the text says they were literally begging God for Peter's life. Because they saw this is real. This is dead. All right, let's read what happens further. Verse 6. <coughs> the night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said. And the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. And when they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. <clears throat> I find this highly intriguing. I don't know how many nights Peter was in prison. But I can guarantee you this, that the Jews were waiting in anticipation, as you'll see some follow-up verses. They were waiting. They were excited. Finally, Peter is in custody. We're going to get him this time. Herod is going to take him out. I'm so happy about this. This is the day before the trial is supposed to take place and probably would have been a martyr. Uh, Peter would have become a martyr. And God's like, I'm going to come fetch you out of prison. What an upset. What an upset. We know this. God does it always at exactly the right time. I, two months ago, I had, could, could go to South Africa, I was gone for, how, how much was that, 10 days, and I went, the primary reason was to go see my grandmother, because she was really ill, and um, my mom just said, you know, it's nearing the end, well, she's lived up to now, but she went into hospital, I think Friday, Thursday or Friday, and I received them message from my mom. They, they've been at the hospital the whole night. You know, this woman has lived a long, good life, but it seems like she's got something eating up her, in her ribs and in her, in her spine, and they've put her on morphine today. And this morning, early, my mom just sent me a message, and she said, um, she's on morphine, and we will have to see what God's plan is. 
at the right time, she said. And I read that message. You know, these types of messages are like, it's, it's just normal lingo. It's, it's words we usually use. Um, but w- after I studied this again, I, I reflected on what my mom was saying. Is My mom was really saying she trusts that my grandmother will die at the right time, which is a good time, which is the right time. And I would implore you to continually use language like that because it, 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 um, it projects the concept that you believe in, that God makes everything happen at the correct time, at a good time, at the right time. Anyways, I thought I'd just put that in because when I, when, when I read this, it just reminded me again, God could have, taken, could have opened the, the doors of the prison five days earlier, four days earlier, three days earlier. It's like he was... He, he, he was evaluating the mindset of the Jewish nation. He was evaluating the mindset of, of Herod. And he knew how this anticipation of the eventual judgment of Peter, what, what that would lead to. And he wanted to upset the court at exactly the right moment in time. God is always on time perfectly, no matter how we feel about it. In Herod's mind, this was the worst time. In the Jews, in their mind, this was the worst time. In God's mind, it is the perfect time. And in the mind of the Christians, it's what? Why did you wait so long, God? It's never in our time. But if we could see from heaven, it's the perfect time. So, um, yeah, I mean, so this also just shows me just a few things. And I hope that we can believe in this stuff. Generally, we struggle to believe in the miraculous. But three things that came to my mind. This is what God can do. Number one. God can get angels into places we can't go. Keep that in your mind. Nobody could go into this prison. God can get angels into places we can't go. That's a fact. I believe in it firmly. Secondly, God can manipulate matter that defies science. God can do that. He created matter. He created the universe. Of course He can. He can make chains fall off. Peter's hands. He can make those big gates into the city open by itself without anybody touching them. That's what God is capable of. We've got to include this belief system in our prayer lives. And then lastly, God can do that all undetected. Because I don't know if you read the text, but there were two guys standing. (laughs) I don't know how this works. There were two guys standing at the prison cell. They weren't sleeping. They were standing. Unless they're very good at standing and sleeping, but they were standing. How did the angel get in and out with Peter without them detecting him? Any guys, these are all miraculous things we've got to include in our, in our belief system. Let's read what happens further. Verse 11. Then Peter came to himself. It's like sort of he woke up it's like to his senses and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. Do you see that God stole the hope of the Jews? Let me go back to this concept of God letting things happen at the right time. The captivity of Peter was in a sense a gift to the Jews. Something that I I believe would increase the pleasure of their festivity during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The death of Peter was something that seems to have been promised by Herod. 
And something that the Jews were all looking forward to. Or at least his judgment or to be put away. That was his peace deal with the Jews. That, that would give him favor with the Roman Empire. And it would bring peace in, in the area where he was uh, ruling. So on the night before the big day, the angels come and they steal Peter. And everything goes pear-shaped for Herod. Why? What do you think it looks like to the Jews? Put yourself in this situation. Herod says to the Jews, look, I'm arresting Peter. I'm putting him in prison. During the feast, the Jews are happy. Woo! Now the wine is flowing. And at the end of the feast, we'll bring him to judgment. And that will be the end of your problems with these Christian guys. And then the night before the judgment, the night before Peter is brought to trial, Peter disappears from prison. What do you think the Jews are thinking about Herod? They think he's lying. How is it possible that, you can, that Peter can miraculously escape out of your prison? Didn't you have 16 guards to take care of him? And so distrust immediately can take place between the Jews and Herod. His whole plan falls to the ground. You'll see now in the text when this comes to uh, realization. So he promised Peter's judgment. And now he's probably making up the story. Oh, they escaped from prison. And the Jews are like, no, it's impossible to escape from prison. I think God is good. And it makes me think of this psalm. This is the first psalm that came to my mind as I read this text. Why do the nations conspire and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in His anger and terrifies them in His wrath, saying, I've installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. This isn't talking about this instance, but this is God. God sits in heaven. And he, sees, he sees what Herod is doing. And it's like, dude, I'm going to take him out of prison before your plan can work. It's like, I'm laughing at you, dude. It's not going to work. I'm God. That's my servant, my anointed. I'll take care of him, and I'll humiliate you. And you're going to see now how he gets humiliated. Verse 12. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant named Rhoda which means the rose, came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back with op without opening and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. What were these people busy doing? They were praying. Can you imagine you are there in that house? Ding, ding, ding. As you're busy praying, ding, ding, ding. You're praying for Peter, and Peter's knocking at the door. That's incredible. God was answering their prayer while they were praying. And I've said this to you many times before, and you've experienced it in your life. While you pray, the answer comes. How many times has that happened? It happens. And I don't, can you pick up the humor in this text? Don't tell me God doesn't have a sense of humor. Peter knocks on the, on the door He's like, just come out of prison. He's probably like this, hiding behind the corners, middle of the night, scared that somebody's going to come and arrest him again. Knocks on the door. Hey, it's me. 
I came out of prison. This girl hears him. She doesn't open the door. She leaves him there. <laughs> she runs back into the house. And he's like, dude, hey. Very cool. Anyway, verse 15. Now, this is the people inside the house that's busy praying. And I want you to listen carefully. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be his angel. Huh. But Peter kept on knocking. Hey, hello. I wonder if he was upset. <laughs> and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet. And described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said. And then he left for another place. This is for me very intriguing. When this girl, the rose, when she went and told him, Hey guys, Peter is by the gate. What did they do? They didn't believe her. They didn't believe her. They made all kinds of excuses. You're out of your mind. It's not him. It's his angel. Really? The Jews believe that every person has an angel that follows them throughout their whole life. Maybe it was the angel mimicking his voice. They're trying to make all kinds of excuses except acknowledging God actually answered your prayer. <laughs> It gives me a little bit of hope. Because when I usually preach about the first century church, what do I say? They were the most incredible people on the face of the planet. You want to see the church at its best? Look at the church at its birth. Right? It's the birth of the church. These were incredible Christians. It gives me a lot of hope to see first century Jerusalem Christians who prayed and didn't fully believe. Because sometimes I pray and I don't fully believe. They doubted. The appearance of Peter defied their faith. Because if they prayed and really believed that Peter was going to come out of prison, they would have said, oh yeah, we were expecting him. Because we've been praying about it. And we believe God would release him. They struggled with prayer the same way that we do. The same way. That encouraged me. That miracles are not just dependent on my faith, but upon the grace of God. He can make it happen if He wants to make it happen. But I do believe, and this is a discussion for another day, I do believe that my prayer affects God's grace. We'll talk about that. Um, I think that even these Christians, these first century Christians, I think that they were in a sense, confined by their own science, we're going to call it that, they didn't believe that Peter would be able to get out of that prison. How can he escape from all of those people? And I think we do too. I also have those confinements in my mind. Um, but we serve a God that can defy all of those limits. Um, the best place for prayer is in dealing with the things that are impossible for us to deal with. And that's why I raised that question when we started. What does that verse mean to you? 
that the things that are impossible for us are possible with God. If there are things that we can do, do it. If there are things only God can do, let Him do it. And we've got to distinguish that and, and prioritize our prayer lives. Let's close off. In the morning, there were no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. It makes sense. Like what happens the next day in, in Herod's house? After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. What do you pick up here? Absolute humiliation. Absolute humiliation. Guys, you need to take care of one guy. You're 16. I think, I think we, in Afrikaans we call this a kopkrapper. This is, you know, I think everybody's standing there scratching their heads. It's a head scratcher. What on earth happened here? And Herod wants to know what happened. And the soldiers are like, I've got no idea what happened here. No idea. And Herod's like, I think he's really upset. He just ordered the death of 16 people because they couldn't guard one guy. And what does Herod do? He moves away. He runs away with his tail between his legs. And he, went, he goes and he lives in Caesarea. Because now it was worse. I can imagine it's worse. Now the Jews are not going to trust him at all. Because they think he's probably part of the escape of Peter. Maybe he's in cahoots with Peter. Anyways, be that as it may. That's our text for tonight. Uh, three thoughts from my side. And then if anybody would like to add something, you're welcome. Political structures are tools used by God to bring about His glory in the end. It's just tools. God uses, you know, we fear and we are concerned about leaders and humans on earth. And God's like, dude, I, I'm, I'm manipulating these guys. I'm using them. I'm in control of them. Don't fear them. Don't fear the guy that can put you in prison or that can wreck the economy. Fear the guy that can throw your soul and body in hell. Essentially, that's what Jesus teaches. We've got to fear the right things. Secondly, it's, a, it's okay to pray, even if you struggle to believe. It's okay to pray. These guys prayed without ceasing and didn't fully believe Peter would come out. And thirdly, don't forget angels are real and exist to serve us. That should affect our prayer lives. I know that's... I didn't grow up with that. Nobody taught me this about angels and the miraculous. And I'm not going all Pentecostal on us. I'm just saying God can do what He wants to do. And we've got to believe it. He's capable. Angels didn't cease to exist when Jesus died on the cross. This is after the cross. Angels didn't cease to operate after the cross. They operated here after the cross. Hebrews 1 verse 14. Aren't angels ministering spirits? sent to serve those who will inherit salvation. So they are servants for us. And God sends them forth. My throat is dry. Anybody want to say something? Yes, 